Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded them all, so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, and astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream. But they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, king of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I had, King Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, 
If only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, and giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass you by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives him to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that way, but that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what I decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royalty has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass you by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the, and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At, that, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of the kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Thank you. I'm just going to pray for Steve before he speaks to us. Um, yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth that is in it. And I pray for Steve as he speaks to us. 
um, that we will be willing to, to hear what he has to say, that we will be challenged. Um, and yeah, not just to put that into practice, Lord, in the next hour, but um, yeah, for the rest of our lives as we continue um, to love you and to make you the king of our life. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Do keep the passage open. We're going to go through it and then apply some lessons. It's a remarkable chapter. It's an autobiographical account of the conversion in the 6th century of the most powerful man in the world from his Babylonian polytheism to trust and belief in Daniel's God, the God of the world, the God of the covenant, uh, the, uh, the covenant-making God with Israel, Yahweh. And the testimony can be summarized. What did Nebuchadnezzar learn as he converted to the living God. He learned this. Now, I, the last verse, verse 37. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Daniel chapter 4 is about humbling the proud. It's about humbling Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. It's about humbling me in my pride. It's about humbling you in your pride. Well, Daniel chapter 4 is about teaching us the painful lessons of humility, but the wonderful freedom we find when we are humble. So let's reflect on his story and think about lessons around pride and humility. Let's put ourselves back into the world and time of Daniel. It's the 6th century, and the Babylonian Empire had displaced the Assyrians and Egypt as the dominant world power. It was, then went into Jerusalem, and it captured the best of the best. Remember, the elite, the nobility, the royalty, the artisans, the scholars, anyone who was fit, the military, to come and serve in the Babylonian kingdom, and it captured Jerusalem. Eventually, most of the known world would be under the sway of Babylon's king and Nebuchadnezzar it's, uh, at the top. However, in chapter 2, which Mafi so helpfully took us through a week or so ago, we learned that the most powerful man on earth slept uneasy because he had a dream that troubled him. If you were with us, Daniel chapter 2 told us about a statue of great glory and power, yet it was built on instability and contradiction. And eventually it came crashing down, this statue, because a stone came from outside and struck the unstable feet of this statue. And Nebuchadnezzar woke up in a sweat. Did this mean his empire would fail? Or was there someone that would come and expose the hidden weaknesses and contradictions within his empire? It's interesting to note that many people with a great drive for power are very anxious and fearful people. And even if fear is not the reason for seeking power, it almost always comes from having it. The higher a person climbs, the greater the possibility of a terrible fall. For now, there is so much to lose. Power, then, is often born of fear or in turn gives birth to fear. Now, the dream was forcing Nebuchadnezzar's insecurities to the surface, and it was exceedingly uncomfortable. And powerful people do not like to admit how weak they really are. In fact, none of us like to admit how weak we really are. And yet even today, two and a half thousand years after this story of Nebuchadnezzar, what reveals our insecurities but our dreams or our daydreams? Those things that we're anxious about, they come to the surface at night or when we find us an idle moment. 
Anyway, Nebuchadnezzar's wise men could not interpret this dream, but Daniel could. And this, in chapter 2, was what the dream was. God had given Nebuchadnezzar glory for a short time, but he'd been given it on grant from God. He was just a steward. Eventually it would go. In fact, all the kingdoms of this world would one day go. That's what the dream said. And there was only one kingdom that would remain, the stone from outside, which would come at the right time, prophesying the coming of Christ and the kingdom of Christ and this eternal kingdom, which would fill the whole earth. So the dream of chapter 2 was a call to humility. And at the end of chapter 2, verses 46 to 49, Nebuchadnezzar confesses that God is the Lord of Lords, and he prostrates himself before Daniel. But it seems, and this is so often the case, we may be converted in desperation, but our conversion is only skin deep, and Nebuchadnezzar soon forgot. His humility before God was only temporary. It hadn't gone deep enough. So in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar suffers another dream. But this one isn't merely troubling. It is terrifying to the great king. Verses 4 to 8 tell us that he was living a contented and prosperous life, enjoying the luxury of being in power. And he had this dream that made him afraid. As in chapter 2, as all throughout Daniel, the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners are revealed as impotent. This time Nebuchadnezzar did tell them the dream, which was nice of him but they couldn't interpret it. But Daniel Belteshazzar comes to the rescue, verse 8. And he says, yeah, this dream was about an enormous tree, large, strong, visible, beautiful, abundant with fruit, wild animals, finding shelter within the tree, giving wildlife the life they needed. And then verse 14 onwards, a voice was heard calling to cut the tree down, strip it of its leaves, scatter the fruit, The animals under its shade would flee. And just a stump and its roots would be left bound with iron and bronze. And notice in verse 15, the tree suddenly is personalized to a he. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals and the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed by for him. With fear and trembling, the king called for Daniel, who heard the dream, and it terrified him. Daniel. Verse 19 says, Daniel, when he heard the dream, was perplexed. Daniel knew the dream was about the king, and it dismayed him. Think on that for a minute. Think on that. The brutal King Nebuchadnezzar had come to, Babylon, uh, come to Jerusalem, taken Daniel by force and others away from the homeland, and now were being forced to serve in his Babylonian regime. And yet Daniel cared for the pagan, cruel king. Like Jesus tells us, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you were Daniel, how would you have reacted to the knowledge that Nebuchadnezzar was for the chop? Would you have inwardly cheered, silently gloating? Serves him right. Not Daniel. He'd gone beyond malice and vengeance. He could take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And this is a vital lesson for us all to learn if we're to mature when it comes to pride and our own Christian maturity. We live in a culture that loves to hear about the fall of other people. People from positions of power and fame come crashing down and we gossip, don't we? 
We delight in their failure. Why? Because deep down we were jealous. Deep down we wanted to have what they had. Deep down we feel they didn't deserve it, and well, we, we kind of did deserve it. Our rejoicing in others' failure is a revealer of the pride and arrogance in our own hearts. I actually wonder if it is the greatest revealer of the sickness of pride that plagues every one of our own hearts. We somehow delight when others fail and we rejoice when we are successful. But Daniel doesn't delight. He's humble and he's dismayed and what the, by what the dream means for the king. But with the king's beckoning, even though Daniel's torn up about it, verse 19, the king beckons him to tell him the dream in verses 24 and 25. And, and Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be humbled and driven away and live with the wild animals for a period of time. Until what? What was going to change the story of this lesson in humility? Verse 25. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. You see, the first dream in Daniel chapter 2 had been an academic lesson. It was general terms about the character of God and the character of humans, about human power and God's power, about temporary kingdoms and the divine, eternal kingdoms. But it hadn't gone deep enough into Nebuchadnezzar's heart, so now God has to get personal with him. The academic lesson hadn't worked. He was still a tyrant. Verse 27 says he's still oppressed particular races, classes, and the poor. Now God was going to teach him what he needed to learn. But there was hope. Verse 26, verse 27. The tree would be cut down, but the stump would be left in the ground to grow back. God was not after retribution, vengeance, or destruction. This was discipline. Pain inflicted with the motive of correction and redemption. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to repent, as God wants all people to repent. What then was the lesson that God had to personally drive into Nebuchadnezzar's heart? Verse 17. The most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over who? The lowliest. The lowliest. The lowliest. This meant that anyone, therefore, who is successful in this world, anyone who's climbed the hierarchies of this world, power and wealth and career and influence in God's economy. Just the lowliest. You're no better than anyone else. God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, President Putin, you, me, something like this. You must understand that your power and success has been given to you by grace from God. If you knew that, that it was a gift, you'd be more relaxed and secure and more humble and just. If you think you've earned your position through your own merit and works, you'll continue to be both scared and cruel. So what happened 12 months later, verse 29? As the king walked on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The, look, the king looked over his gardens and his kingdom and his empires and his servants, and the pride of his heart asserted itself. And verse 31, a voice came from heaven, and everything that was decreed came to pass. 
and he lost his royal authority. He was driven away from his people and he lived among the wild animals. Nebuchadnezzar falls into a time of apparent mental, severe mental illness in which he was too deranged to live in the palace, so he lived within the animals on the palace grounds. This is William Blake's famous painting of him. Some have suggested he had boanthropy, a mental affliction where a person imagines himself as an ox and behaves like one. Others have suggested lycanthropy, where the afflicted person believes he or she is a wolf. Whatever it was, it was terrible and it was humiliating. However, we should notice there was 12 months delay in carrying out the threat of the dream, showing God's reluctance to do this to any human being. God takes no pleasure in reducing a human being made in his image to the level of a brute beast. God wants humility. He doesn't want humiliation. However, if necessary, he will humiliate the proud into genuine humility if there is no other way. And so, friends, this is the lesson for today. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand before he has to humble you, particularly if you're successful. Humble yourself today before he has to humble you. God has done it with me on several occasions, even recently. I've needed a failure or some, or some honest, constructive feedback from those close to me to bring down the pride in my heart. And you'll have a story of two. Maybe right now, you're experiencing a failure. Humble yourself. Maybe right now, you've experienced constructive criticism and feedback from a friend or in the workplace. Or Humble yourself before Almighty God. One of the great ironies of pride is that when human beings try to become more than human beings, when we try to become as the gods, we end up becoming lower than human to be your own God, to live for your own glory and power leads to be, you become much more bestial and cruel in your behavior. Pride makes you a predator, not a person. This is what happened to the king. In C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the main characters is a young boy named Eustace Scrub. Eustace clearly had a lust for power, but he expressed it in mean, petty ways that only a schoolboy could in teasing torturing animals, tattling, ingratiating adult authorities. He was a Nebuchadnezzar in training as a schoolboy. One night, Eustace found an enormous pile of treasure in a cave. And he was elated and began to imagine the life of ease and power he would now have. And when he woke, to his horror, he had turned into a hideous dragon. Lewis writes, sleeping, on a dragon's horde, with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he himself had become a dragon. Becoming a dragon was his cosmic natural consequence. Because he thought like a dragon, he'd become like a dragon. If you set your heart on power, you become a hardened predator. The Bible says repeatedly, you become what you worship. Eustace was now an enormously powerful being, far more powerful than he'd ever dreamed, but he was also fearful, hideous, and completely lonely. This, of course, is what power for its own sake does. But the shock 
of becoming a dragon humbled Eustace, transformed him, and he longed to be what? To be a boy, to be human again. As his pride faded, the idolatry in his heart began to be healed. And one night, Eustace the dragon met a mysterious lion. The lion challenged him to undress, to try and take off his dragon skin of pride and greed. He managed to peel off one layer, but he found he was still a dragon underneath, and he tried two more times, three times, but he could never get rid of his dragon nature. Finally, the lion said to him, you'll have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he'd gone right into my heart. And when he began peeling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt before. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft and smaller than I'd been. I turned into a boy again. The line of the story, Aslan, represents Christ. And the story bears witness to what all Christians have discovered, that pride leads to death, breakdown, and a loss of humanity. But if you will let your pride and that becoming hardened and that, that desensitizing uh, nature that happens in your heart and the fact that you become less human, if that pride will even humble you rather than embitter you and you can turn to God and turn away from your sin and to his glory, then a death in your pride can happen which leads to a resurrection and you become human again. You can emerge tender-hearted, not hard-hearted. Well, something like this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34 to 37. God, God humbled him but only in order to exalt him. He raised his eyes towards heaven. His sanity was restored. He praised the Most High. He recognized the great king of all and the one whose kingdom endures forever. And as his sanity was restored, so his earthly position and honor were greater than before. In verse 36. A year or so ago, I did these daily devotions by a man called Charles Spurgeon. You do one in the morning and the evening. And he had this lovely one in April on humility. And he talks about how God keeps us humble for our own safety. I'll read a few excerpts. Humiliation of the soul always brings a positive blessing with it. If we empty our hearts of self, God will fill them with his love. The whole exchequer of God shall be made over by deed of gift to the soul, which is humble enough to be able to receive it without growing proud because of it. God blesses us all up to the full measure and extremity of what is safe for him to do. If you do not get a blessing, it is because it is not safe for you to have one. If our Heavenly Father were to let your unhumbled spirit win a victory in his holy war, you would pilfer the crown for yourself. And meeting with a fresh enemy, you would fall a victim so that you are kept low for your own safety. When a person is sincerely humble, and never ventures to touch so much as a grain of praise, there is scarcely any limit to what God will do for them. Humility makes us ready to be blessed by God of all grace and fits 
us to deal efficiently with fellow human. And so we have the concluding verse, 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's pattern, humbling us so he can exalt us. Where do we see this pattern most of all? In Jesus. He became human and went to the cross to die for our sins. He lost all power and served in order to save us. He died, but his death led to a redemption and resurrection. So if like Eustace and Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus, you fall into great weakness, but say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there will be resurrection for you as you humble yourself. Jesus' example and grace heals our desires for power and control. The normal response to our powerlessness is to deny it, to find people to dominate and control in order to live with that denial. But Jesus shows us another way. It's as we encounter his love that we stop feeling we need to prove ourselves or control our lives. We can admit our sin and our powerlessness and live lightly and live freely and live humbly and live confidently even as we fail and even as we receive constructive criticism. So before I finish, what does it mean for when pride rises in each of our hearts as it will do in the coming weeks and months? Firstly, our achievements. How do you handle your achievements without pride? We may not have built Babylon in all its splendor, but there'll be lesser achievements that will tempt you to be proud. There's nothing wrong in enjoying God's creation and his gifts and using those gifts to the best of your abilities. In fact, there's a lot right. It's called worship and stewardship. But if you've been given intellectual ability, artistic or musical talent, sporting talent, humor, leadership skills, business acumen, money, or an aptitude in a thousand and one other directions. Remember that everything you have is a gift from God. And if it's a gift from God, why are you boasting as if it comes as a dessert for your hard work? So when you achieve something and people applaud you for it, don't practice that false humility. Oh, no, no, it was nothing. Don't talk to me about it. And inside you're gloating. Go in private and say, Lord, I cannot boast in this. It is a gift from you, but I'm grateful you enabled me to do it. We're not the source of our gifts or achievement. We did not merit them. They're not given to fuel our pride. Their gifts are given to us so we can serve humanity and give glory to God. However, you will never know if you've dealt with pride in your achievements. You'll only start to know in your failure or when you receive constructive feedback. It's all well and good giving thanks to God and giving him glory when it goes well, but you don't know what's really going on in your heart until it all goes wrong. If you are proud, it will devastate you, and you'll have an insatiable appetite to get back on top, to prove yourself. And you'll find 101 reasons and people and circumstances to blame outside of yourself as to why it went wrong, rather than taking responsibility and admitting that you're not perfect and that you are limited and that you do make mistakes. And things do go wrong under your watch. 
this instinct goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right back then, we resented the limits put on us. We struggle with this sense of I'm dependent and I'm powerless. We don't like the idea of being limited, yet we all know we are. And the humble person does not fight it, but accepts it and trusts God in all things. So if you've, le- if you've learned to accept everything as a gift from God and you realize that you are very finite and limited and you're not very special, you're just the lowliest of peoples, when you fail, whilst you'll be disappointed, you will not be devastated. And you will not worry too much what others think of your failure. And you'll be able to receive the constructive feedback as a gift from God because you're resting securely, not in your achievements, but in his love. But again, you'll never really know if you're humble in your achievements or in your failures. You'll only really know in others' success or failure. C.S. Lewis, in his helpful chapter in Mere Christianity, talks about how pride in its very essence is competitive. It's all about comparison with others. He calls pride the great sin, because all sins, all other sins, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, are just mere flea bites in comparison with pride. He says it was through pride the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. He goes on to say, do you think I'm exaggerating? Think it over. The more pride one has, the more one dislikes pride in another. If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their awe in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I want to be the big noise at the party. I'm so annoyed that someone else is the big noise. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, Pride has gone. He concludes, pride is competitive by its very nature. That is why it goes on and on. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. So what does it mean for us to cultivate humility day after day after day? Well, when others succeed... Rejoice and be glad in their success. Repent of any jealousy and ill feelings you have towards that person and thank God that he's been so generous in gifting that person. As a spiritual discipline, rejoice when others succeed. I challenge you. And watch freedom come into your life like you've never known when you thank God that he's gifted someone else more than you, you'll discover something you've never discovered before. Thank God when others succeed. And when others fail, as we saw with Daniel today, don't delight in it, but be sad and look to help. Here is a fellow human being made in God's image who needs compassion, kindness, encouragement, 
and help. So this brings me to my last point of low self-esteem. The issue of success and failure of others, the nature of pride as competitive, also explains how low self-esteem is the other side of the coin of pride. Why do people suffer from low self-esteem? Because they don't think they're good enough. They think they're a failure. They think others are better because they don't match up to the standards and requirements. They're not slim enough, pretty enough, clever enough, popular enough, whatever enough. You see the word, it's enough. It's a comparison. It's the flip side of the competitive nature of pride. Of course, cruel people may have initiated, aggravated, or compounded this by telling you that you're not slim enough, pretty enough, clever enough, popular enough. Modern culture tells you all the time you haven't met the standards. Parents, siblings, teachers often inflict this cruelty on us and give us unreasonable expectations. And God wants to restore our self-esteem. But he wants to restore it by telling us how much he loves us and how cherished we are and how he made us in his image and how how valuable we are to him. But he will only restore our self-esteem as we humble ourselves and allow him, like Eustace, to face the lion and let him undress us and clothe us with righteousness. We will never change our low self-esteem by trying harder or telling ourselves we're great. It just won't work. The only way our self-esteem will be restored and healed is with God's love and applying the gospel to our hearts day by day. And so we do that now through the bread and the wine. It's a moment to remember that one was humbled so you can be exalted. Jesus was humbled. He had to die for your pride and for my pride. The great God of heaven, the King of kings, was treated like an animal, a brute beast. They whipped him, they mocked him, they spat at him, they killed him for pleasure, as if he was just an animal. Why? He bled and died for your pride and mine. But he he died so you and I could be exalted. He was glad to die for us. Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. The great God of heaven, the King of kings, endured the cross to exalt you, to know you, to put a price on your head. There could be no greater price of your... What is the value of your life? The blood of the Son of God. What else could tell you our value? in such a definite way, and he wanted to adopt you as his beloved. The bread represents his body, broken, ripped apart like an animal for you. And the wine and the juice represent the blood that was poured out for you. He humbled himself so he could exalt you. So come to his table tonight, humbly, grateful for his sacrifice. Take a moment just to be still before the great God of heaven, recognizing afresh that heaven rules and everything you have is a gift from him. And then I'm going to read a short prayer that comes from the Church of Ireland or the Anglican liturgy when it comes to communion. Take a moment to be still before the great God of heaven. Repent of pride. Acknowledge his gifts. Prepare your heart to receive the bread and the wine.
read this prayer from the Anglican Church about our humble approach. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. We are not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs that come under his table, but we come by his mercy. Amen.